Today we talk to Tilly Walden, graphic novelist and author of Spinning and On a Sunbeam, about not reading any of the effing books called How to Publish, because what matters is getting shit done and being fearless. Fu does a really shitty Boston accent, and intern Lily reveals the unedited 100-word title of her forthcoming memoir. You won't want to miss it. Do you have a very plush couch that you can face? <laughs> a cat. Surround your microphone with a furry, furry cat. Open the floodgates to a family of cats. I'm a cat person, also. Oh, me too. I mean, a cat, a cat would convince me not to vape. So before we start, I just need to let everybody know Jess won't be here today. Tilly, Jess is our normal co-host. Well, normal is relative. Jess, we miss you. We hope you feel better. And maybe if we're lucky, Fu will do his Southie accent for us in honor of our Bostonian friend who can't be here. <laughs> Amazing. How you like them apples? Okay. That's terrible. <laughs> I'll get it, right. Okay. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. I'm Lily Wolfmeyer. I'm Fu Lu. And this is Effing Shakespeare. Bye, writers. For writers. Our guest today is the graphic novelist, space opera librettist, cartoonist, and general badass of the page, Tilly Walden. In four years, she's published five books, plus a delicious little volume that's a meditation on creativity I can't hardly do without, and another book forthcoming in September. Her work is a glorious sinking in. Frame by frame, we move through her stories, taking note not only of what she writes, but also what she draws into the space between words. Her worlds are built as much from the words she writes and the frames she draws as they are the gaps of breath in between. Amidst pages saturated with the color and movement of crimson fire space storms and fish ships, she's a master at capturing the beating heart moment in a clip of dialogue just out of frame or in the pensive reflection of a girl's face against glass. Like a good poem, Walden's art requires a reader to slow down and sink in, to resist the frenzied turning of pages, to savor. Can you build a world out of the elusiveness of deep sighs and quiet places? You've only to open Tilly Walden's latest novel, On a Sunbeam, to be schooled. Tilly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That was quite an introduction. (laughs) That was lovely. And I'm really impressed with how you said fish ships, because that's really hard to say. I said it a couple times in the car on the way over, I have to admit, because if you don't say it, Correctly, it sounds like fish chips, which is weird yeah, and not at I know. all what <laughs> would go I know. With the story at all. I wasn't thinking about that when I made them fish. <laughs> <laughs> they work so beautifully on the page, though. They're amazing. I love them. Thank you. I saw, I, I can remember vividly seeing Miyazaki's um, Spirited Away in the theater and being completely blown away. I was like, holy shit, what is he doing? And how is he doing this? I've, ne- you know, it's something I hadn't ever seen before, and I feel that way when I'm reading you. That it, it visually, but also narratively, it feels so different. There, the way you tell stories is is 
built differently than other in the way that other people tell stories. And so this is one of those impossible questions because I don't think it, it I don't think it comes from the product of schooling. I think it's like storyteller mm-hmm. DNA. Mm-hmm. But but do you know how you do it? Do I know how I do it? You know, <laughs> I've been asked that enough that I've been I think each time I answer it, I get a little bit closer to the truth, but I don't know if I'm all the way there yet to have a complete answer. But the, the thing that I think of is that I didn't have a lot of the typical influences as a kid that most kids do. Mm-hmm. Well, by the, when I showed up to comic school when I was 18, it turned out there were things called Star Wars and The Wizard of Oz and Indiana Jones and a lot of just like really essential things that I I missed. I was busy ice skating or I was busy doing something else. And so already I think I never felt like there was a traditional story. I never felt like there was a way a story is supposed to be told. I never thought about mass appeal. I never thought about, you know, the the hero cycle or this typical plot structure. And so when I started sitting down to make stories, it was the same way I would sit down and record a dream that I had last night. It's a little incongruous. It's a little, um, you know, I'm, I'm relying a lot on gut feelings and on intuition. I'm not thinking about kind of the standard things that are taught in, in a typical class. Also, I didn't, I didn't go to a traditional college. I've never had an English teacher in my face telling me, what a story is supposed to be. And I think I'm really lucky because of that. I don't have any preconceived notions, but I do, I do think that at the heart of it, the reason my stories turn out the way they do is because I trust myself and I really trust my voice. And so when I'm making something, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. It's just what I'm making. Um, And I I don't know the direction a story is going to go when I start it. When I started on a sunbeam, I had absolutely no idea where it was going to go but I trust myself like when I would it's like going down in a dark cave without a flashlight I just feel my way there man that's that seems so liberating too that you that there's nothing in there clouding your judgment as you move forward including self-judgment which is such a barrier sometimes it is it's a huge barrier and it's one of the biggest barriers I find with artists just starting out I mean, I teach these workshops in the summer and literally what becomes the lesson of the whole class is just trying to convince everyone that they are worth it and that they should tell the stories they want to tell. It doesn't, you know, the practical information of how to draw a hand and how to do a panel layout that is clear and concise, anyone can learn that, but not anyone can get to the point where they believe in themselves. And I think that's what makes the difference between, you know, a person who wants to be a storyteller and a person who is a storyteller. Yeah, yeah. And you know, as as I hear this, I'm also thinking about your age as a creator, being a young creator. I'm, you know, a 20 year old creator myself. And then I kind of think about some scenes in On a Sunbeam, like especially the really fantastic scene where Jules is telling off an older woman who doesn't treat the Mm -hmm. crew with respect, who refuses to use Elle's pronouns. And I think in general, I'm I'm hearing that your workshops and your teaching, but also your stories kind of speak to the concerns and questions of younger generations who might feel kind of written off or unsure or, you know, forging that path in the darkness with a flashlight. So how do you think about your role as a young creator when you're making those kind of scenes and teaching these workshops? I think, you know, I think about it a lot. I don't, you know, I don't usually think about it in terms of myself. When I think about my generation and I think about 
all these people who are growing up with technology. And I, I know it's a cliche to talk about technology as kind of the plight of our generation, but I think it is. And I think that the judgment that surrounds us uh, both online and from our peers is something kind of unprecedented and something kind of new. And I think it's horrible to have to grow up with these platforms and with this kind of environment. And so when I think about that and I think about the stories I'm telling, I realize that I want so desperately to create worlds where this isn't a part of it and dealing mm-hmm. with identity doesn't have to be a big issue. You know, these other problems can be at our forefront instead of these ones that have been kind of manufactured for us because of the the products we use. And, you know, I I also try to really think about how not a lot of people have time for stories and not a lot of people give themselves time to either think about their own story or to consume something. Everything is very fast. Everything is very short. And I draw really long books and I draw them traditionally with pen and paper. (laughs) And I like to think that the act of doing that is something I can pass along to my students. This, this idea that there is still time in this world for focus. There is time for things that are not electronic. And I, I really try, I try to pass that along, but it's, it's hard. Everyone's moving at 90 miles an hour all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a question from my daughter, who's also a huge Tilly fan. And I, you know, not to put the parent hat on it. No, of course. But it does. It makes me feel so happy that this is in the world for her because it, you know, these are things that, that you want for your students. I want for my kids and want for just people in general to be able to, like I said, in the intro, sit and and stay a while, you know, meditate. Yeah. You, there's no, yeah. there's, you know, there are some frames and, and series of pages where there aren't any words at all on the page. And you're just sitting there mm-hmm. communing with art, which I think is really important and we don't do enough of. Um, but I just did, I wanted to play this question for you from my super fan at home. Hey, Tilly, I'm Sophia, and I was wondering while writing your memoir how you were able to recall or remember all these memories that were so important in your book and how you kept track of all of them. Thank you, Sophia. That was a great question and one that I think has an interesting answer and an answer that people don't often expect. So I I never kept track of anything of when I was a kid. I was not the kind of kid that kept a journal. I could not be bothered. It was the kind of thing that, you know, someone would give me a journal for a Christmas present and I'd be like, oh my God, I'm in a journal and I'd fill in one day and then forget about it. <laughs> and that was my journaling. So there was not a lot of, uh, you know, physical evidence for me to rely on to make this memoir. But I realized that that is actually completely okay because memory is extraordinarily flawed truth is very warped when it comes to you recalling your childhood. I mean, you're a child. Your brain is not fully formed. You're like a half-baked cookie. So (laughs) I thought, when I would think about that, at first I was like, oh my God, well, how am I going to be able to like tell my story accurately? What what do I do? And I, I had this realization of, I can only tell my own truth. I can only tell what I remember it to be how I remember these things to have happened. And I have to know going into it that how I'm going to remember these things is going to be a little bit warped, especially moments of extreme emotion, moments of trauma, moments of 
of any kind of intensity, the, the moments we come back to in our mind are often the ones that get warped the most because it's like clay. You're just molding it and molding it and molding it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that that's actually wonderful and completely fine because how our memories change and how they end up deciding to live in us is so interesting and so totally worth our time. I have no interest in knowing exactly where I was on what day, at what time, and what I said. What I am interested in is how I felt on the first day of school, how I felt at that skating competition, how I remember feeling falling asleep the night after I had just come out. You know, those are the things that come back to me. And so basically my answer to you, Sophia, is I try not to worry about it. I try to be as honest as I can within my own limitations and, uh, you know, just go into it knowing that a lot of the details probably aren't accurate, but at its emotional core, it is the truth. So I can stop buying her journals? You can. Does she use them? Does she use them? (laughs) Um, She does. She does, but I think it's, you know, intermittently. And then my, my middle child uses journals and just draws everything that she can think about drawing so oh um, see that's fantastic they get used up yeah it's fine (laughs) (laughs) big comfort to all of those of us who have just piles of unused journals (laughs) yeah oh so many unused notebooks yeah 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 I have a friend who I've been doing book club with for like 20 years and he has he has oodles of journals he's kept a daily journal for probably 25 years and I think he finally stopped because he couldn't even he he went back and started rereading them because he couldn't even like manage all of the journals and continue to write and so he said i'm going to just stop writing and read his journals which wow. I, I think at a certain point i was envious of that but now that i hear what you're saying i'm like oh i'm actually a higher level being now <laughs> don't have yeah, to worry about we've that we've transcended so we've transcended <laughs> journaling because we are too lazy and too unfocused <laughs> yes it's can really finally good. tell all of our Christmas present gifters it's time to find something new, even though we're writers. That's right, yeah. Tilly, can you talk about your publishing journey? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. I'll talk about my publishing journey, but with the caveat to anyone listening who wants to have a publishing journey someday, that this is probably not how it's going to go for you. I am an (laughs) exception. This is not standard. Although, to be fair, most of my friends and their publishing stories, no one is standard. There's no no normal way this happens. We tell them on the show all the time, and they're they're as varied as our guests are. They are, no two are like, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really important thing to to understand. So it started when I was Lord, 17, when a publisher first reached out to me because they had seen my work on Twitter. This was Ricky from Avery Hill Publishing, who is now a, a dear friend and I've worked with on three books. And he emailed me when I was a senior in high school. And the only way he had managed to get in touch with me is because I had a website with a with an email address. And I politely, I don't even know if it was polite, actually. Let's not say that. I turned him down. Um, I mean, I was like a, an angsty teen. God only knows what I said. But I said, I said no, because I was very confused about the prospect of publishing. And it just didn't, I don't know, didn't, didn't seem like the time yet. I didn't feel confident in my work yet. But then fast forward to a year later, I'm at the Center for Cartoon Studies. Uh, I'm 18. And Ricky gets in touch again. And I remember he got in touch around when the snow started falling. So it must have been close to winter that year. 
And uh, he said, do you want to do a book? I said, yeah, let's do a book. Why the hell not? I had drawn some comics at that point. I had, you know, I was feeling good. I was feeling uh, much more myself now that I was like living on my own and, you know, openly gay to everyone in my life. So there were a lot of factors that fueled me to say yes to this. I said, yes, I published three books in a quick succession at the end of summer. I love this part in the city inside. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the way with those books, someone spoke to someone who spoke to someone and an agent got in touch with me, Seth Fishman, who is my agent. And again, I'm realizing there's a pattern here. I also turned Seth down initially. And then a few months later, I was like, nah, I want you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, you know, I, I was attempting in this process to try to take my time, but the, uh, the wheels of this industry, once they get a hold of you, can start to move very <laughs> rapidly. And so it's with Seth that uh, I got my deal for Spinning, which came out with First Second Books. And I worked with my editor, Connie, and she's amazing. And then after I finished Spinning, I was like, I'm going to take a break. I'll just make this little comic on the side. And that little comic was on a sunbeam, which was not a little comic in the slightest. And in its <laughs> initial form was 700 pages. Oh so, but then Connie was like, hey, what have you been doing since we did spinning? I was like, oh, yeah, I did this thing. And so first, second, published on a sunbeam. And then now they're publishing uh, Are You Listening, which comes out this fall. So my publishing journey that's is basically crazy. people asking me to do things and me saying yes. That That's enormous output levels, output levels of epic proportions. It's a little ridiculous. I do, <laughs> I do understand that. It does help a lot that I very quickly, after my first book, The End of Summer, left behind my perfectionist ways. I still, I still can be a little, you know, I can be detail oriented and a little OCD, but for the most part, especially with something like on a sunbeam, I could not care if like the ears were weird or the figures were the wrong size or the lighting doesn't make sense or the backgrounds change from panel to panel. I just sort of stopped worrying and thought the point of this is to tell a story, to get in these characters space and to do something with them. The details don't matter. And so because of that, I was able to draw at this really, really fast rate. And it was also a webcomic first, right? It's first incarnation, like it existed in the world for free. Exactly. For... Yeah. And it, it still exists in the world for free. You can read the entire thing for free online. And I'm happy to happy for people to do that. So I'm like horrified and also, again, envious of this. You know, I work on my intro for my guests a couple weeks and it sort of sits on a page and it's on a Google Doc that like the whole our Bloomsday team has access to. And I was yeah. like horrified at some point to realize that our new intern was reading my intro in its like various shitty incarnations, oh. lots of different <laughs> shitty, you know what I'm saying? So it was like, yes, I do it was drafted and there was like cut and paste shit in there and like, oh, I should talk about this and this. And so, and, and then at a certain point, I was like, oh my God, everybody's reading this right now. So there's no way I could put like a, a webcomic in the world that's released serially. Yes. Like it wasn't all out there at the same time. Right. I mean, I put it all, I put that whole like kind of messy first draft up there. And then after working with a publisher, I then updated the draft online to match, to match the book. But yeah, I... I mean, I was, I totally for a moment felt that like, oh my God, I'm letting people see that I have no idea what I'm doing with this story because I was putting it up chapter by chapter and it was very clear that each chapter, I didn't know what was coming next, but I've, I have realized this and this is such a liberating thing to understand is that like the stakes in all of this are really low. It's comics. The absolute worst thing that can happen is someone doesn't like it 
and that is just <laughs> no big deal. You know, it's really like no one's getting hurt. No one, you know, there's just no consequences. <laughs> it's just, there are consequences if you, you know, your self-worth, you have some issues with that, but it's like, oh wait, this is, these are drawings. It's, it's no big deal. We're just going to I'm just going to make what I want to make. And it was worth it because a lot of people got a lot of joy reading that uh, that first draft. And I'm happy for that. That's a really mm-hmm. fucking good lesson. Yeah, that, t- that take yeah. A, takes a lot of guts, too. I mean, did you feel that fearless when you were working on spinning and thinking about releasing that? I was learning to be fearless with spinning. I was learning okay. it. You know, being fearless, I don't think, is something that happened for me overnight. It's been a process throughout all these years to get to this point where I could feel confident in my voice and confident enough to not worry what, about what other people think. So in spinning, I think spinning was my my way to learn it. And then Sunbeam was kind of me mm-hmm. reaping the rewards of what I had learned from making spinning. Right, because mm-hmm. it's so much more personal and potentially scary. Yeah. Yeah, of course. It's super scary. Being vulnerable is really scary. Facing uh, facing things that are that I didn't even completely understand and spinning was really scary. But I I had to decide, do the pros outweigh the cons? Is is what I'm going to get from this book, is that going to outweigh what is scary about doing this book? And I decided that it was, that I was going to get enough from it to make getting through this something that I was willing to do. I have this question about balancing the writing versus the visual actually this is Lily's question but it makes sense to me too our other co-host Jess and I are constantly fighting about what's better drafting or revising and I hate revising Uh. with an unending passion and she she can revise all day long she it's like nothing for her to open up her document and just sit there and revise and fucking piddle all day long and I'd rather gouge my eyes out so I'm I'm curious like what part stimulates you the you know sort of the 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 drafting and getting it getting it down or um going back and honing it with a you know skips. oh i mean i'm i am so clearly team drafting always oh, team drafting. Nice. It's, it's the making of the story that is what's interesting and here's the thing with revising i also hate revising oh, but the only reason it works for me is that i have someone else who is telling me exactly what to do there's never a point where i look at my art and decide what to change i have no idea what to do i do not have the education for that so my editor literally at the end of a book and i sit down and make a book without any plan i hand it to my editor and it's of course always a mess always oh because God. if you make a book without a plan it's going to be a mess but it has a lot of heart and a heart of a lot of love but my editor Connie is the one who like sends me these epic lists of all the things to do and a lot of the things she tells me to do are just starting points she'll say I want you to look at this scene and I want you to think about this and this and this and think about how to better get get that across but because someone else is giving me a starting point I can do it. I don't enjoy it, but I'll do it and I'll, I'll take it there. And it always makes it stronger. That's amazing. Thank God for other people. I can't do it. <laughs> I really Connie. can't. Can Connie work with me? Can she come fix my novel too? Oh my Connie. God. She's just, she's amazing. So terrifying sometimes, but so amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, speaking, unfortunately, as someone who does not have, you know, an editor to catch every little thing and therefore I miss a million things, you know, and and that's Mm -hmm. true for a lot of like young writers and artists who are just figuring out how to get into the world, who are not sure how to break into publish, getting published yet. So for you, what would you say are essential tools for people who are starting out? who want to be cartoonists and graphic novelists, like, 
do you have suggested readings or websites that are super helpful that you use if Connie cannot, you know, be there at the moment? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my response. But if if it's not something that you know, that's the thing. The thing with creativity is like, if this doesn't work for you, that's okay. But this is right. how I would answer that question. Mm-hmm. There is no, absolutely no website. I don't think there's any YouTube channel or any resource that is going to tell you how to do this. I think the most important thing for a young creator is to not think about editing at all, but to think about output, to think about making as much as they possibly can. And every time they start a comic, whether it's two pages or 200, you finish it. That is the most essential skill. And I think part of the point of starting to make comics is learning to figure out what you wanna say. And no one else can answer that question. You absolutely have to be the one to figure that out. And I think there's a lot of fear when someone starts out in something new, especially comics. So they want to figure out what the right pen is that's going to make it magic. And they want to figure out what the right panel layout is that's going to answer all their questions and cure their depression. There is no, you know, there's nothing like that. It's just, it has to be about you and your voice. And you have to be willing to sit with yourself and develop that. And then if you have enough work made, then you can start thinking about editing. You can think about what what kind of publisher do I belong with? What kind of audience? do I need to start thinking about? But I think the problem is, is a lot of creators start thinking about that way too soon before they've actually made enough comics. If you haven't made 100 pages of comics, then I don't think you should be thinking about about publishing or about, about any of this yet until you've proven to yourself that you do actually have what it takes, which is not a fun answer to give. I know, it's kind of a shitty answer. I want to just go to the craft store and buy pens. <laughs> God damn it. I know. We all do. We all do. It's amazing. But no, I'm too I'm too much of a hard ass for that. No, but I think that's good. We need to we need to hear the the tough truth sometime. My producer's nodding his head because he tells me this shit all the time. Like stop trying to make everything perfect. Just finish the damn yes. thing. Do it. Finish. Life is short. For God's sake, we do not have a lot of time. I blinked, and then high school was over. So, like, let's let's get to it. Also, the fundamental <laughs> part of making of being a cartoonist is the fact that you make comics. So, if you're not making comics, then I, I have a bit of an issue with that title. That's a really good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. If you're not drawing, you're not a comic. Okay, so get to drawing no. or get Start a job drawing. at it's Starbucks. Not that hard. <laughs> Stick figures look great. Just go for it. I'm serious. <laughs> exactly. Go back to some good old MS paint. <laughs> Hell yes. <laughs> Hell yes. Your next book, Are You Listening, is coming out in September. I suppose it is. That's... Yeah. I've sort of lost track of it, but yeah, I think it is. What What is it about? Wow, I haven't had to describe this book much to people, so this is this is rather difficult. Uh, on the surface, it is about two people uh, on a road trip in West Texas, but it is not the West Texas that we all know. It is oh something is kind of wrong with it. It's a little too big. It's a little too empty, and someone happens to be following them, and they're trying to figure out what that is. They pick up a mysterious cat at the gas station. So those are the kind of that's sort of what it is on the surface. But underneath that, it's about um, I think it's about trauma. It's about sort of those people in your life who you're with for kind of a a very short amount of time, but who will have a remarkable effect on you. You know, not those people who are with you for years, but who might be with you for a few weeks. But those few weeks can can change your life. Holy shit, that sounds amazing. Oh, gosh. I'm going to have to remember how I said that because I'm going to have to say that again. 
have just a little sound bite of the podcast <laughs> to pull out whenever you need to. <laughs> that's oh, that's right, such yeah. a good idea. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Okay. So for the for the last segment of the show, we do like a little. I don't know. It's a. We haven't really decided what this thing is. It keeps changing. <laughs> it's sort of like potpourri, the potpourri category on Jeopardy, lightning round. I don't even know what that word is. Plus, I don't like know what that word is. esoterica. I don't know. We're just making up words. We're okay. just making up words. That's cool. Um. Yeah. So you have to answer quick, and we'll just throw you a couple of questions back do and it. forth. Do it. Okay, I will share my most embarrassing skating dress if you can share yours. Um, mine definitely has to be when I had to dress up as the cheerleader from Glee, but I had glasses on, and everyone said that ruined the ensemble. <laughs> no. And I think it did. Also, the cheerleading outfit, way too small. I was busting out of it. The judges saw way too much. Oh, no. Oh, no. I have a. I have an unfortunate picture where I was like 12 in this hot pink tie-dye number, and I had, oh, this was yes. like firmly at the end of the 80s, early 90s. And so it was still shiny tights time. Do you remember? I don't know. That's oh, probably before no. you. Yeah. Oh, no. The Danskin <laughs> extra shiny. And um, I was like just skinny and had legs and arms going all kinds of places. And it was just, it's like still to this day, one of the most embarrassing pictures you'll ever see. It sounds incredible. Yeah. I'll, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, so our next question is, it's midnight, you can't go to sleep, so you what? head into, yes, you head into the kitchen, and you grab this food and this book. What is the food and what is the book? Uh, I grab, uh, wait, do I have, can I, can I cook very quickly? <laughs> yes. You can't, you know what, you can't sleep, you can't sleep, you can do anything. <laughs> I want, I want grits, uh, okay. I want grits. For like the, cheese know, grits people... or just like no, just like old plain grits plain... with like a little butter, salt, and yeah, pepper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, wa- I would pick up The Secret Place by Tana French, and that is what I would do at midnight. Oh, my God. That's good. Favorite piece of fan art you've seen for a Tilly Walden character or story? Oh, Jesus. Oh, uh, someone just handed me – oh, God, where was I? At TCAF, where I just was, Toronto Comic Arts Festival. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Someone anonymously left Sunbeam fan art because they were too afraid to meet me. I don't know why people are afraid of me. I am <laughs> so friendly. just slipped it under like, <laughs> the table for you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but to whoever you are, thank you. Aww. They drew uh, Mia and Grace in like kind of medieval outfits with swords. Oh my God, that's oh, amazing. That and it was best. amazing. And I was like, this is the fantasy reboot we've all been waiting for. This is like Game of Thrones yeah. meets Mia and Grace. And the Sunbeam Game of Thrones would be so much better than what Game of Thrones is doing for me right now. That's true. I'm sorry. Agreed. I, I get, I, this isn't a Game of Thrones podcast. Agreed. No, we can go there. We've certainly talked oh about God. it enough. Yeah. Holy oh shit. God. So yeah, that that wins right now. Absolutely. Well, turning around and looking at your influences and what you are fascinated mm-hmm. by, if you were in charge of creating, directing, animating the next Studio Ghibli movie... What, what would it be about? What would it look like? What would the voice, you know, what voice actors would you get? Give us the picture. 
Oh my God. Oh Lord, this is a really big question. <laughs> Go all out. Everything. <laughs> okay. No, 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 no. Okay, okay. Here I am. Here I am. So I loved the first five minutes of Tales from Earthsea where they had that really beautiful castle and the rest yes. of it was shit. So we're going to take the beautiful yes. castle. <laughs> Basically, I'm recreating my first book. I want giant cats that the characters can ride around on. I want there to be lesbians. I don't yes. want fake lesbians like when Marnie was there. I want real lesbians. <laughs> I want, what do I want? I want dark magic. I want one of the lesbians to be involved in some sort of dark magic that they get too deep in and the other one has to basically go through this dark castle underworld to get them out, to get them away from this bad part of themselves. It's, you know, about, you know, saving someone. I don't know. I want this movie. I want this movie. I want this movie. I want the voice actors to be actual lesbians. I don't want yes. straight voices. And preferably Japanese because all the Ghibli movies, the characters are presumably Japanese because the creators are Japanese. I love it. That's fantastic. That's, and I have no name for it. Maybe I should just combine all the Ghibli names into one. Spirited Castle in the Sky of Nausicaa of With the Kiki. Moving Castle. Yeah, let's do Kiki. it. Kiki. And it's all a delivery service and there's a bakery. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Um, lastly, we're doing a round robin, so everybody gets to play play here. Um, and I stole this from Twitter this morning from my favorite new Twitter crush, who is Sarah Marshall. Um, mm-hmm. Who do you are you familiar with this freelancer? She wrote an amazing piece for Believer on Tanya Harding, which I keep mentioning. Oh. It's like the oh people must believe this is the only thing I ever read, but it, I don't know. It's really good. Um, well, that's okay. <laughs> um, and Worth so it. so yeah yeah you should check it out. Um, and so the last text you sent is the title of your memoir. Fu, you go first. Tilly, you get to you get to close I have us some out. Time. Okay, okay, yeah. Go ahead, Fu. What's your memoir? The last text that I sent was to you. <laughs> and it says cat with soy for Lily, please. <laughs> Cappu- Cappuccino. Cappuccino with soy for Lily, please. <laughs> My lactose intolerance broadcasted. <laughs> Foo's memoir. Okay, <laughs> mine is um, it's it's very simple. It's just ug yes, <laughs> which is kind of my my life. Yeah, ug and then yes. Mine is probably the prototypical nervous intern. I texted Foo. I'm a tad early, so I'm just hanging out in the front. Let me know when I can come in. I don't want to rush you if you're still getting breakfast or wake anyone up that might still be getting around. (laughs) A memoir about Lily A memoir. Wow. These are all going to be bestsellers, you guys. Oh, my God. I think mine needs a bit of a a length cut. We need to talk to Connie about how we can adjust her time. Yeah. Can you you send Connie away? (laughs) We might need some editorial on that. Is it my turn? Yes. Okay, I sent... This is actually fantastic. I'm really glad I sent this text. I sent it to my friend Dave, and I was late trying to Skype with him, and so... We had talked, we had talked back and forth, and I was like, just like, I'm almost there. And then finally, when I was ready, I said, I am here, I am queer, I am ready. <laughs> yes. On that one. That's perfect. Perfect. It's really accurate. That is fantastic. You should, you should hold that one. Hold on to that one, Tilly. That's I'm going to remember that. Yeah. And Dave didn't respond because I don't think he thought it was funny, but I think it's funny. <laughs> You just have to send him a, a copy of the book when it comes out. Yeah. <laughs> His memoir, Dave's memoir, could be that little response that's a scene, you know? Oh, yeah. 
no. Red one hour ago. Yeah, exactly. That's Jason. Red. Oh, my gosh. Uh, uh, Tilly, thank you so, so much for being on the show. We are overjoyed that you were here, and thanks for course, chatting thank with us. Thank you for having me. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary, in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fu Lu. Our interns are Jennifer Overfield-Renya and Lily Wolfmeyer. Production assistance by Lily Wolfmeyer. We just have to go with that. Like, at least it's we're not smoking. We're not going to die tomorrow. We're going to die yeah. someday. Yeah, it's like we're vaping. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> oh, shit. Have you seen those vaping commercials where they use those puppets? No. Oh, God, no. And there's this cat no. in there. Oh, you yeah. a vaping cat? There's a cat that goes meow. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, there's a. It's dangerous of vaping. And they use these puppets, and I love those commercials because one of them has a cat. So I'm I'm a cat person, also, Tilly. I, I have two. Oh, me too. I mean, a cat a cat would convince me not to vape. If you vape, you're four times more likely to start smoking cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs>